an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. A very good day to each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is the 75th episode of Life After God. As most of you know, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and was a pastor in the church for 19 years. I went to Seventh-day Adventist elementary schools, colleges, and the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary for my Master of Divinity degree. For decades, the Adventist Church has fought off its identification as a cult. I was frequently confused in the minds of the general public as a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness throughout the years of my ministry. These are the other American cults that emerged in the United States in the 19th century. Adventists and the Witnesses actually share some common history as well, as you'll hear in just a few minutes. My guest today is probably the most famous contemporary ex-Jehovah's Witness and has been instrumental through his writing and his YouTube channel for helping hundreds of people find freedom. Before I tell you more about him, a few quick updates about Life After God. This new season of the podcast has been running steadily since January 1st this year. My commitment at that time was to do two episodes a month, roughly every other week. And since January 1, for the past almost five months, I've produced 14 episodes, or an average of 2.8 episodes per month, which have been downloaded over 36,750 times. We're not breaking any records, but I'm so thrilled and honored that you're a part of this community. Your participation means so much to me, whether it's just listening whenever you get the chance or being a member and supporting the show financially. And I just wanted to take a moment and thank you so much for being here and being a regular listener and downloading the show and and writing to me when you have the impulse to do that which, of course, I welcome at any time. Anyone that wants to reach out and drop me a line, you can email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. If you appreciate this podcast, there are a number of ways that you can support it, most of which are free. You can subscribe to the show using your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. You can go to iTunes and write us a review, a glowing review, of course, This actually helps other people find us. I'm not sure how it works, but the experts that I read tell me that when people write reviews and rate the show on iTunes, it puts it on people's radar in a a different way. So I'd love it if you would go and leave us a review. You can tell a friend about Life After God or post about it on your social media. You can sign up for our newsletter and subscribe to our social media. You can find the newsletter and links to all of our social media accounts on the website, lifeaftergod.org. And finally, you can support us financially. This podcast is one of the most rewarding things I do, and I'm committed to keeping it free so as many people as possible can hear it. But it isn't free to produce. 
And if you'd like to help keep the show going with a regular monthly contribution, I'd invite you to visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. For a limited time, if you join as a member, which is just $5 per month, approximately the cost of a latte per month, you will receive a limited edition Life After God magnet that I just had made. If you're already a member, you'll be happy to know that your magnet is already on its way to your address. For the next 30 people who join, you will receive this beautiful magnet as a token of my appreciation. In all of these ways, you can help me get the word out to a wider audience and help the growing number of people who are just starting their journey away from faith and religion into the unknown. So please become a member today. Just visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and join. My guest today is Lloyd Evans. Lloyd is the founder and senior editor of jwsurvey.org, a website that promotes free thought among Jehovah's Witnesses. He is also author of The Reluctant Apostate, a book that chronicles his experience growing up as a JW and his journey to freedom from watchtower indoctrination. His John Cedars YouTube channel, which has nearly 50,000 subscribers, hosts a range of videos aimed at dissecting the various teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as new developments in the religion. Lloyd was quoted in the March 22 Atlantic article entitled, A Secret Database of Child Abuse, a former Jehovah's Witness is using stolen documents to expose allegations that the religion kept hidden for decades. The former Jehovah's Witness referred to in the sub-headline is Mark O'Donnell, not Lloyd Evans, but it was through Lloyd's YouTube videos that Mark O'Donnell found his way to freedom. Lloyd Evans, welcome to the Life After God podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a little overdue. I know we've been chatting off and on over the last few years, and it's just a a real privilege to to talk to you now, and it came about in my mind again, uh, or the the impulse to contact you came about for me again because I saw the um, article in the Atlantic recently about the um, database of child molesters from the Jehovah's Witness Church. So I want to definitely talk to you about that because I know you're mm-hmm. you're uh, referenced in there as well as a source. Sure. No, that was a very good piece. Um, it took a, a year for Douglas Quenqua to put that piece together. And he did an awful lot of research and drew together a, a lot of information, um, including some very powerful, compelling stories. So I was very pleased that that story was published. So before we get into that, though, um, I, you know, I know quite a few of my listeners will be familiar with you, especially those that come from a Jehovah's Witness background. You've been really instrumental in so many people's lives in helping them find uh, freedom. But for those that aren't ex-JWs, it's a little bit of a mystery, perhaps. Some of these, uh, like Seventh-day Adventism is for me, people are like, yeah, I think I've heard of that. Uh, Probably more people are familiar with the Jehovah's Witness than are familiar with the Adventists for some reason, but um, Mm -hmm. maybe you could just give us a little of your background, like where did you grow up and what was your experience of, uh, did you grow up in the the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and what was that like for you as a young kid? Sure. So as you can probably tell, I'm British. So I grew up uh, in northern England, not far from Manchester. In fact, when you fly into Manchester Airport, you're only 10 minutes away from the family home where I grew up. I have flown into Um, that airport. Well, there you go. Um, So yeah, it was very, very convenient for 
uh, taking holidays abroad. Um, but yeah, it was uh, a very, very devout upbringing that I had. Um, both of my parents were witnesses. Uh, on my dad's side, it went back as far as his parents uh, joining, or at least his mother joining. So they took it very, very seriously. And although I had friends at school, the only ones I was really allowed to hang out with and spend lots of time with were other Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, mm. And yeah, it, it had a big impact on me uh, so that by the time I was sort of in my teens, I was almost convinced that I wanted to devote my career to the religion. But then I began having doubts at around the age of 19 or 20. Uh, these were mostly to do with the theology and with various interpretations of prophecy that just weren't logically sound. Um, and so I started waking up, but then when I was 21, my mother died. And this had the effect of plunging me sort of deeper into the religion because as a Jehovah's Witness, you're told, well, if you want to see your dead loved ones again, you need to be as close as possible to the organization because that's the only guarantee you have of seeing them in the resurrection. Hmm. And so I, again, threw myself into my religion and I, I went through what's called the Ministerial Training School, which is a two-month course designed to really train young men into in, kind of becoming um, people who can be used by the organization in a variety of ways. And not long after doing that school, I was appointed an elder. Um, but then a year later, through a variety of, for a variety of reasons, I ended up moving to Croatia. And I was warned at the time, this is going to have the effect, Lloyd, of weakening you spiritually, because you're not there's going to be a period where you don't know the language and so you'll find it difficult to uh, keep your spirituality hmm. uh, strong. And and I dismissed all this. And I said, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll learn the language and everything's going to be great. But that's exactly what ended up happening within just a few months of moving to Croatia. Um, I found it was almost like being unplugged, like, like the scene from the Matrix where they – Hmm. pulled the jack out of the back, the back of someone's head. It was like that. <laughs> it was just ve this very, very conscious feeling of, okay, uh, I'm I'm in a religion and I, I'm pretty sure I don't believe it anymore. And, and yeah, so that thus began my my journey into apostasy, which kind of had various stages to it. But um, to cut a long story short, I'm now a, a full-time activist youtuber writer um done a, a bit of stuff with documentaries and television shows so yeah that's where i am now that's fascinating uh, when you said that your faith took a turn after your mother died i thought you were going to say that that pushed you further away from the church which sometimes experiences like that do in mm. your and in your case it pulled you in and I don't have any empirical data to suggest one way or the other which is more uh, common an experience, but in, in my in my brief experience of talking to people who have left uh, a very strong religious upbringing, those mm. types of traumas can can go either way. It seems to me. Have you have you had that yeah. experience? Definitely, and I actually had people. Well, it's a life altering thing, and I had people saying to me, my, like fellow believers in my congregation, saying, oh, are you angry at God? 
Right. And I and I'd say, well, why should I be angry at God? He's the only one who's giving me the opportunity to see her again. Hmm. Um. And that was my logic. It was like, well, yes, it's tragic what's happened, but wouldn't you know? Um, I've been lucky enough to be born into the only religion that gives me a, a shot at, at cheating my own death and <laughs> and is, seeing uh, my my loved ones again who've died. So, what are the chances? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what are the chances of that? And, and I, obviously, I look back and think, what a hopelessly naive mm. attitude. But that was the attitude I had, and sure. Um, and so I really, uh, even though I, I had doubts and I think that lots of Jehovah's witnesses have doubts, if not like the vast majority, because I don't know whether you're familiar with the, the book of Mormon musical, but there's a, a song that says, turn it off. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's what it's like when you're a witness as well, you you are told it's called waiting on Jehovah. You've got to basically bury all of your doubts um and reservations in hopes that in one way or the other they will sort themselves out and obviously they don't go anywhere they just fester Hmm. and and so my reservations from when i was 20 uh flicking in horror through this book that just was hope was all over the place in terms of logic um, when I did finally move to Croatia, it was precisely those doubts that came back. And I thought, hang on a minute, maybe I was onto something there. Hmm. Um, and it turned out I was. So, yeah. Was the move to Croatia, was it as, the, yeah, as your um, sort of mentors were warning you, was it the language and sort of, or was it more like the uprooting yourself from a safe community? Because I know Adventism has this hmm. type of um, very sheltered, type of communities where you like I went to elementary school and an Adventist school and then ordinarily I would have gone to an Adventist high school I had some other things that happened in my life but then I ended up going to an Adventist college and and then you graduate and you maybe you get a job at a hospital which is in an Adventist community and you go to the Adventist church and and so there's this sort of um, insulation from uh, the problems that your faith might confront if you were outside of that community. Is that something like what happened to you? Not necessarily. I, it was an eye-opener to see the way the religion is interpreted slightly differently, mm. um, depending on which country you're in. It's almost like um, like an alternate universe where everything's pretty much the same apart from just one or two little things which tell you it's different and that's what it was like in Croatia so they just had a slightly different attitude you could say an even more I don't know fastidious devout attitude almost Mm. they they were kind of taking things to extremes Um, but really it was the language it was the fact that I mean these uh, meetings I mean when you're a witness you go to the kingdom hall twice a week and sit through uh, meetings that are just over 90 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And when you're going through that kind of ritual week in, week out, um, it is like you're, well, you're on a treadmill, but you're also just receiving this constant flow of indoctrination. And so what happened was when I moved to Croatia, it was like someone had literally turned the tap off. And there I was kind of stranded with my own thoughts rattling around in my head. And 
slowly coming to the realization, oh, good grief, I'm not actually a Jehovah's Witness because you can't be a Jehovah's Witness unless you agree with every single thing that the governing body tells you, and I manifestly don't agree with all of it. So how do I rectify this tissue? That's fascinating, and I I feel like part of my growing up experience in the Adventist church was similar. Like it was, Mm. as one of my theology professors in seminary said, a a ball of wax, you know, like it was, and you, you couldn't separate out. Um, So for instance, growing up uh, and it's, it's also a weird moral equivalence that happens um, in, in a person's development. So for me, I was not supposed to listen to rock music. I wasn't supposed to drink caffeinated beverages. I wasn't supposed to, go to uh, dances or um, watch movies, especially not in the movie theater. And this was a sin to do these things. And so was, I don't know, having sex outside of marriage or, Mm -hmm. and then on another level altogether, um, you know, like killing someone or stealing something. And there was no sort of sense of, of, um, moral nuance in in my life and so if you went to the movies you were essentially committing the same kind of sin as a murderer and Mm. and it was um at that point that a lot of my peers much earlier than i did said well you know if i'm you know going to you know drink a coke (laughs) let alone a beer uh, you know then i may as well just leave the church because i've done you know the a horrible thing i'm not an adventist anymore um mm. it's it it must be difficult to for the for the church to, for for the jehovah's witnesses as an organization to maintain faithfulness on the part of their believers and their members if if it's such a high bar of of commitment is how do they manage that well you would think so but the the, the thing about jehovah's witnesses is that for all of the high bars that they set, they have people's minds in their in their hands. They have total control over people, and they manage it through uh, basically through fear. Mm. So that if you are, especially if you're raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and and it's all you've ever known, you're you believe that the world around you is doomed uh, to be destroyed very soon, as in imminently, by Armageddon. And you believe that if if Armageddon were to to come or or to catch you off guard, you'd be one of the ones who who dies. In fact, it's so serious that um, there was actually a a video leaked of a governing body member named Tony Morris giving a speech to some witnesses in Trinidad in January 2018, and he's telling them all to look at their hands and he's saying, now, as you look at your hands, do you maybe see some blood on them? Well, you might see blood on your hands if you're not regular enough in the preaching work in warning people of what's to come. Oh, wow. It could it could be that you've not been preaching. It's, it could be that you've not been out in the preaching work in weeks, in which case, uh, what were his exact words? Um, you're going to lose your life. So wow. that is the level. I mean, there's no shame to it at all. It's 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 just blatant manipulation and fear mongering. But that's the level of control that the governing body has over witnesses. So that 
even it, like in my situation where I'm realizing that the theology doesn't make logical, rational sense, the, the, the existential kind of fear of, of losing your life if you're not a witness kind of takes priority yeah. <laughs> over all of those other things, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you mentioned some of the logical inconsistencies that began to plague you when you, especially when you moved to Croatia, but probably harking back to those initial doubts in your mm. late teens, early twenties. What, what, what's an example of one or two of those uh, from the witnesses that, that really were maybe the most troubling for you? Um, it's interesting because I now have a whole different list. <laughs> I, I, I look at the list that I wrote back then. I called it my nine grievances. And, um, you know, there was some interesting stuff on there. Like, like I'd reached the conclusion that evolution was, was a fact. Mm. Um, and and that, that is heretical in, in terms of Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that evolution is a lie. Right. Um, and so that was one thing that, that I was kind of carrying with me. Uh, and, and by the way, that has a big, that's a big deal when you're a witness because, for example, you'll be watching the latest David Attenborough uh, documentary. There's one out now um, called Our Earth, I think it's called. Really good. Huh. And you'll be watching it and, and David Attenborough will say something about evolution and you'll be sat there on your sofa saying, ha, huh, well, I know better, you know. I have what that exact they- experience from my childhood <laughs> watching like National Geographic or something with my family yeah, and it's just beautiful and we're just enraptured with the whole thing. And then he says, you know, the narrator, whoever says, uh, you know, eight billion, eight million years ago or six million years ago. And we'll all kind of look at each other and roll our eyes like, well, he doesn't know what we know. So... You know, it was just the weirdest, yeah. and just dismissal without any evidence or or arguments in our favor. It was just, well, it would it would have been the Bible. <laughs> you, you literally think, as a fundamentalist, that you know better than science scientists, right? Um, if scientists say one thing and your religion says another, so it was that sort of thing. It was all there were also one or two like issues with prophecy, like this book that I'd. I'd had an issue with it came out when I was 19 and it was about the the book of Daniel and I was very enthusiastically kind of leafing through it because I wanted to I felt I was at an age where I could start to spread my wings and and make a like create my own identity in the congregation and I wanted to be I wanted to kind of be well briefed on this new publication that had come out. So I was reading it kind of very optimistically thinking, oh, this is this is new information and I want to be on top of it all. And you, you come to stuff that just, it, it's internally inconsistent. So for example, in one prophecy mentioned in or referred to in the book, it says that um, ancient Rome ends up becoming the Anglo-American world power. They refer to it as the Anglo-American world power for various prophetic reasons. <laughs> um, and then in another interpretation of Bible prophecy, they say that ancient Rome becomes Nazi Germany through convoluted reasoning involving Charlemagne. Uh. Um, and so you're thinking, well, why would God inspire the Bible writers to, to on one hand, say this power becomes... Anglo-America, and on the other hand, say this power, be- ancient Rome becomes 
the the nemesis of Anglo America. How is how does that make any rational sense? So I was I picked up I picked up on this when I was nineteen, but again, you're thinking, well, big picture, Lloyd, <laughs> you'd better agree with this, right. or you're toast if Armageddon comes. So that's how you rationalize your way through it. It's weird how our brains could say that these writers or these so-called scholars or church leaders could be so inconsistent and wrong about, say, that prophecy, but right about hell, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it never occurs to you in the beginning that, yeah. well, because they're obviously both of these prophecies can't be true at the same time, so it's probably wrong that maybe they're also wrong about the afterlife and all these other things that would sort of mitigate the fear of, mm. of losing your eternal life. But, but no, it's just like this fear of eternal life lives, uh, uh, this fear of losing eternal life lives in a, a different place in our brains in this very um, sort of primitive place, it seems to me, where it triggers our, our deepest anxieties and, and existential fears and somehow logic doesn't touch it. I've talked to people in the Life After God community who have become atheists and who um, can they can rattle off the arguments against Christianity with the best of them and probably win a debate against an apologist, but they still live uh, from time to time uh, this existential fear like mm. in, invades their life and, and they're like, I don't know what to do with this fear. <laughs> It's, it's wild. Yeah, it stays with you. It really does. Um, but and another thing that witnesses have is is what's called new light. So that hmm. they they pluck verses from the Bible that refer to the light getting brighter, and and they say, well, what this means is that our in our understanding of the Bible um, is getting more accurate. Uh, as time progresses, because God is slowly guiding us to to the fullest knowledge of the truth right. over time, with with incremental increases in, in light or understanding, um, and you never stop to think for a moment that what that actually means is that in the past God's been giving wrong information right. to his his followers which actually makes god a liar and you never think of it that way right you you just somehow manage to say oh okay that makes total sense and you you go along with it yeah with some of my progressive adventist friends that i was traveling with at the time and who are many of whom are still friends of mine you know i, I sometimes will ask them you know what what is more likely that god had the right attitude toward gays and lesbians and transgender people all along and we're just now finally interpreting the, the Bible the right way and getting to the real truth that was always there all along? Or is it more likely that the Bible is just wrong about that and we're maturing morally as a human species? You know, it just, it seems so unlikely and, and actually contradictory to other claims about God that God would, and it's just cruel, like that God would not give us that information. I mean, it's very clear that God is able to get very detailed about what's required from how to wash your hands and when a Mm. person's unclean or or, or clean or exactly which animals should be sacrificed for which sins and and when and how often. And it's very, very detailed information about how to be holy. Mm. And and then the most general things like slavery, you know, are, are very complicated for God. Can't quite get his head around, you know, those big issues. Oh, don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, 
I've I've made videos on on some of the because uh, I I'm actually now able to look at the Bible and think that this is this is a deeply immoral book if you if you follow its lessons and and consider consider the kind of moral uh, consider these pronouncements to be moral. I mean, I mean, I'm, I was thinking as you were talking there about the the kind of clean, unclean laws, and one of those laws was that if you're a woman and you give birth to a baby girl, you're twice as unclean as if you were to give birth to a baby boy. Right. Well, you know, how does that make any kind of sense? It only starts to make sense once you consider the possibility that it was written by men. Right, yeah. <laughs> living in a very backward time, L- literally, men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's remarkable, and and even if you do what many Christians do, um, and say, well, the Old Testament was, um, God was meeting them where they were, and so it was an imperfect representation of what was God's ideal, and now it's getting you know better in the New Testament and so forth. There's still the same sorts of of problems, and in fact. You would almost expect for Jesus, at least, to correct some of those those mm. mistakes, to deliberately say, you know, you've heard that it's been said, um, you know, if you if your child sins against you in the following way, you should stone them. But I'm saying to you, don't do that. You know, and the kind of mm. in the Sermon on the Mount, God, do, Jesus does that a little bit, but it's very in vague terms and. Um, and and it, it seems like there's just so many opportunities for God to clarify God's self. Yeah. And and it's just that God turns out to be at at best a very poor communicator. You know, if I, if I were God and I wanted, um, I had this utopian vision of the world, and I wanted my people to come along and and accept my vision of the world and start to live according to that vision. I would be doing everything possible to get the message across, you know. So I don't know; it's just yeah. far too complicated. No, I, I actually, when I was a JW, I used to cringe at some of the passages in the Old Testament, and I used to kind of reason my way through it, thinking, "Well, at least by the New Testament, you know, things are uh, normality is established, and and things are a little bit more respectable," but. You know, again, you apply critical thinking to the New Testament. In my opinion, the New Testament is worse in some ways hmm. because, for example, you have Romans nine, where it, it basically describes predestination and right. and says that uh, God hated Esau while he was still in the womb. <laughs> wow! And 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 makes humans uh, makes some people as vessels of wrath fit for destruction in other words he makes them evil so that he can destroy them this is this is the kind of crazy stuff that went through the apostle paul's head and he's writing it down there in in romans 9 in again god's supposedly inspired infallible word telling us that god actually makes us evil so just so that he can get the thrill of destroying us it's astonishing how did your ministry if we can call it that of of um, helping people who were going through serious doubts and deconverting from the witnesses, how did that come about for you? Um, I, I never imagined doing doing this, frankly. Um, for me, it all started when I, when having realized more or less 
you know the 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 extent to which I'd been exploited and lied to, I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some something interesting to be gained from going online and interacting with other XJWs, and that was quite a terrifying prospect for me because obviously yeah. I'd spent my entire life being told of how evil and selfish and greedy they are, apostates that is, and you know they're even described as mentally diseased in depending on where you look in Watchtower Publications. So it wasn't something I went into lightly, but there I found myself surrounded by people who were going through or had gone through exactly the same thing I was going through. And just through interacting with them, I realized, gosh, there's there's actually, you know, a lot of scope here for 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 activism and and for making resources available and the first resource that I wanted to make available was a survey because I thought wouldn't it be great um because Jehovah's witnesses don't really get a voice they just have to agree with everything that they're told and I thought wouldn't it be interesting if we could have like a survey so that even believing Jehovah's witnesses could go on the survey and indicate what they really think about various teachings and policies so hmm. That became jwsurvey.org right. because um, a, another ex-witness reached out to me. I'd never, met, I'd never heard of him before. We'd never met each other, and he said, "Do you want me to build your website?" So I said, oh, "Go on then." Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what have I got to lose? You know. Yeah. And so that became jwsurvey.org, and um, the same friend, maybe a year or so later, said, "Oh, there's this big." Um, a sex abuse story, Candace Conti, the court verdict, you know, Watchtower has been fined millions, but I've noticed that there isn't really anything on YouTube covering it. What do you think about making a video? Hmm. You're good at that kind of thing. So I made a video and it was, I, I was at that point not able to appear on camera because I was still technically a Jehovah's Witness. So hmm. I, I wrote a script and got someone else to read the script and I did like a montage and that kind of thing. And that was really my my first foray into YouTube. How long ago was uh, that? That was 2012. Okay, some time ago then. Yeah. And, th- and then by uh, November of 2013, my wife and I were expecting our first daughter. And that was actually the last push that we needed. Uh, I was already by that point ready to, you know, exit completely and let my let my identity be seen and that kind of thing but I was holding off because it wasn't you know wasn't the right time for my wife Mm -hmm. but when we had Jessica on the way we thought no we've got to make a clean break here because if we stay if we remain in this religion even if in name only our relatives will consider it their duty to indoctrinate Jessica any opportunity they get. Mm. So we need to kind of draw the line in the sand and make make a very clear statement that we're having no more of this. And so once that decision was made, I made my first ever kind of on-camera vlog um, announcing the reasons why I was doing it, etc. And um, I don't know, I, it, just, it just felt natural to to talk on camera about what my ideas were. And in a way it was a very liberating kind of cathartic experience to do that. And again, that was November, 2013. And obviously I've been at it ever since then, but 
probably the, the cathartic side of it has kind of dissipated somewhat. And I'm really doing it more now because, uh, you know, I've, I've met people in person who've, who've, who've said very emotionally that something I've said or, or some kind of argument I've, I've made has really impacted them in some way. And, and when you meet these people in person and you, you see, you see in their faces how, how profoundly they've been affected by, by you just being in, in front of a camera for a few minutes, you think, gosh, I better do more of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's mm-hmm. amazing to me, just as human beings, how sharing our stories unites us and brings us together around common themes. I mean, I think as, mm-hmm. you know, back to pre-literate societies, right? Like people sitting around a fire at night, you know, eating and drinking and telling stories and and those stories become the bonds of uh, a common community, a common humanity. And when mm. people can hear their own experience, I mean, even me right now, listening to you for the last half an hour, I hear you saying things almost literally like, like when you said new light, you know, that the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have this concept of increasing light or new light. I mean, the Adventists have the exact same thing. Mm. And it just makes mm. me feel, even though I'm five years on from my own deconversion, it makes me feel like this is, you know, I feel connected to your story in a way that makes me feel less alone mm. or, or less crazy, even though I'm fairly beyond feeling crazy about these sorts of things anymore. The only thing I feel crazy about anymore is that I ever was as committed to it as I was. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you next was, as you've been for the last six or seven years telling your story and putting it out there for others to hear, and then getting feedback from those people who have heard your story and relate to it, what have been the common themes around what people need or what they long for or what they, like the resource, types of resources that they need as they're coming to grips with their doubts and maybe their eventual unbelief? Well, that's one of the most frustrating things because um, in my experience, people who escape a movement like Jehovah's Witnesses where their thoughts are not their own for mm. for a sizable chunk of their lives, um, suddenly they've got to basically figure everything out from scratch, you know, including how to do some fairly rudimentary interactions with people in their community who don't believe as they do, who they once believed were worthy of annihilation at any moment wow yeah and now they've now they've got to start making friends with these people and and developing a social circle and so there's there's that issue um there's the whole that's before we even talk about the kind of mental emotional hang-ups from i don't know shunning a family member for decades or you know, believing that the world was going to end any moment. You know, there's some tangible kind of fears and I would say demons lurking around in people's heads. And sure. I think I think all people I think everyone who's been in that kind of movement has that to a greater or lesser degree. It's just a question of how you manage it. I think that it, it, it certainly in my case it leaves you with a lot of anger. Hmm. And you feel as though, well, you, you feel as though you've been abused. Your your life has been altered and you can never have back what was taken from you. And, you know, having established the fact that you have this anger, it then becomes a question of, well, 
where do I direct this anger to and and how do I how do I use this anger and in my own case I've figured out a way of using my anger um trying to turn a, a negative into a positive and using it to fuel my activism work but for some ex-witnesses it's not that simple some have so much anger that they for example will find Jehovah's Witnesses preaching on a street corner and confront them you know and berate them and and mock them Hmm. Um, or they might even storm into a kingdom hall and interrupt a meeting um, and you know try and interfere with with what the what the witnesses are doing that way and which in my view, it's is not a productive way of dealing with one's anger because apart from anything else, what's happened is that you've just completely verified the stereotype of, of what an apostate does and how they behave. Oh, so, wow, yeah. So th- th- there's all sorts of issues. <laughs> you could write, um, you, and, and probably issues that are best dealt with by people who have more of a, a reading on psychology than I have. Although I have written a book called How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses, which kind of goes through some of the basic steps because it, ap- apart from the whole psychological angle, and I, I just I just have a chapter saying, you know, find a, a therapist, find a counsellor. But there are other kind of fairly basic things, such as starting up a... Uh, you know regaining your your social identity and that kind of thing and and some kind of very practical things such as how to deal with elders when they when they knock on your door and want to know why you've not been to a meeting in a few weeks so there's 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 just a minefield of of things for people to negotiate when they uh, when they go through this process i had a young woman on my podcast over a year ago, probably going on two years ago, a young woman named Brooke, and she was a a Christian in the Quiverful cult. Um, yes, yes. The the Quiverful cult. Quiverful cult. Gosh, that's hard to say, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and she was so um, entrenched as a child and as a young person in that movement that when she got out of it, finally, she tells this amazing thing in, in, the, in the podcast about how she would... Um, she had a terrible time learning how to j- evaluate someone's character. So she would start dating people and which she was never allowed to really do until she was, you know, she was supposed to save herself perfectly until she's married and all the rest. And, and she would start dating men that were really bad to her. And, and then she would do it again and again and again. And this was more than just the typical pattern that you sometimes hear about mm-hmm. of people not valuing themselves or something. And then they, tend to get into these patterns. Uh, this was more for her of not literally not knowing whether she could trust someone or not and just sort of indiscriminately trusting people and then realizing, wait, this person's not trustworthy. How can I tell the difference? Like, how do I mm-hmm. literally, how do I know whether a person should be trusted or not? How do I have skepticism about people and evaluate their intentions through the things they say or do? She had to learn all of those social skills that ideally we learn growing up just naturally from the interactions that we have in our families or at school or whatever she had been mm. isolated from all of those opportunities to learn in in those ways and and she got herself into some really difficult situations just trying to navigate as an adult what someone would typically begin to learn when they were seven eight years old 
It was, mm. it was just fascinating. And it felt to me, and listening to you now, it feels to me like a lifetime of being gaslighted, you know, that, yeah. you know, that you have almost literally gone crazy trying to, you know, figure out how to take responsibility for your own life and not take on, you know, these things that you've been told you're guilty of or the bad things that are supposedly going to happen to you and to be able to say, no, I'm my own person. I'm my yeah. own and I can trust my intuition. I mean, I was trained in my upbringing not to trust my feelings or not to trust my intuitions because that was where the devil would come into my mind and lead me astray. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that my own reasoning couldn't be trusted, that it was the divine inspiration that was the only thing that I could trust. And it's still hard for me when I feel like I think I'm right about something and it's hard for me to even sort of feel strong in that sometimes, like maybe I'm wrong or, and which is, you know, not always a bad thing to have some humility about your beliefs or what you're, you're thinking, but it, be, it became a, t a kind of... Um, pathological self-doubt sure because you were so used to having your thinking done for you yeah um but it's interesting you, you call it gaslighting and, and it, of course it is but the in, at least in the case of jehovah's witnesses when they when they're calling apostates mentally diseased right uh, the tragic thing is that in some ways they're right because mm. ex-witnesses are so messed up by what's happened to them in the organization uh, you know who can blame them for for being in this state, and it's, sure. it's Watchtower who's calling them mentally diseased, who's put them in this position to begin with. That's that's what that's the real tragedy, as far as I'm concerned. And and it's what's especially bad is when you have people who are you have a, a policy whereby those who leave are automatically shunned by their believing family. So mm. in my own case. You know, my two daughters, granted one's only two weeks old, but let's take Jessica, who's four years old. She's never met her granddad. And her granddad's a Jehovah's Witness elder, by the way. Oh. He's had he's had opportunities to see her, won't see her. Why? Because mummy and daddy are apostates. Mm. And, wow. you know, I, 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 I like to think that I've got more or less a, a handle on, on, on my how I feel and my kind of my the emotional impact that my religion has had on me but even I struggle sometimes with with just with just waves of sheer frustration mm. that I am being penalized for nothing more than reversing a decision that I was manipulated into making at the age of 11 which is when I was baptized so because I I allowed myself to get baptized as an 11 year old my my four-year-old daughter can't have a contact with her granddad and and this sort of thing messes with people so much that you hear time and time again of of people committing suicide because of it because mm. as humans we're, we're just not built to deal with ostracism it's it's kind of the worst thing that can happen right to, to a human being is for people who they care about to, for some unknown or unjustifiable reason, to just stop talking to them. It messes with people's heads. And 
I've because I've now been out of the religion for a while now, you, you make friends with people from all over the world who, you know, you, you see them on Facebook and the thing that you all have in common is that you were all once Jehovah's Witnesses. And I've I've had pe- I've had a number of occasions now where, oh, this person's actually committed suicide. Oh. Because they just can't deal with it anymore. Even though they know that they were lied to, they know it's not the truth, they know they were exploited. It's just the simple fact that they don't know how to exist with with the shunning that they're being subjected to. Um, I assume that you do, but do you consider the Jehovah's Witnesses a, a special like categorically different than Christianity in the sense of the abuse that it, it does to people? Um, I, well, there, there's lots of people who, lots of ex-witnesses mostly who have converted to another form of Christianity. Right. Who say that Jehovah's Witnesses aren't Christian. Um, I actually disagree with that because according to the dictionary definition of what a Christian is, which is someone who follows Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are are Christian, uh, but if you're asking me whether I whether I think they're a cult, yeah. then quite clearly they are. Although, again, I have a slightly different take on what a cult is or isn't than than most people, because mm. I, I actually think that any any movement that teaches things that are not true to children is doing harm and. I struggle to think of a single religion where that's not the case because you could have the most benign religion that teaches only doing nice things to people but if it's if it's filling children's minds with deep with quote unquote facts about the universe that aren't actually true then it's doing them a disservice so but I th- I think that it's it's scalable so I, the in my mind you have kind of soft cults that do almost no damage and then you have extreme cults that just ruin people's lives. And I place Jehovah's Witnesses fairly high up on that scale. As a Seventh-day Adventist, we always had to fight off accusations of being a cult from the mainstream evangelicals. And and we were mm. constantly, um, you know, compared, not compared so much, but miscategorized as either Mormons or, or Jehovah's Witnesses, people would hear, oh, mm. you, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, or I, you know, and they're like, oh, is that like a, that's basically like, that's a Jehovah's Witness. And I'm like, no, it's a Seventh-day Adventist. And they, you know, the three religions have a common history in terms of sort of arising in the United States in the, in the middle 1900s, um, or eight, rather, I'm sorry, the middle 1800s. And, mm. um, and it's it's interesting. There is, there is actually a, a bit of a closer link between Adventism and Jehovah's Witnesses than mm. say with the Mormons. That's because true. uh Charles Taylor Russell, who founded the Watchtower movement, was heavily influenced by um Adventists. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I just you know, that's interesting these three um have so much in common from, you know, prophetic utterances to, you know, extreme versions of remnant theology. Mm. I mean every Every Abrahamic faith has some kind of remnant theology as a part of it, but some of the more progressive ones have sort of opened the remnant to most people, and and then universalists have said the remnant is everyone. But but some of these um, more culty type uh, sects of Christianity have held on pretty tightly to the idea of a, a remnant, a, a true faithful that will be saved. And if you're not mm. part of that, as you, you alluded to much earlier in our conversation, that 
that the Jehovah's Witnesses had a special um, a special access to God's blessing and and salvation. And we Indeed. we would have said the same thing as Seventh Day Adventists, and I believe Mormons as well. Mm. So this um the the we can we can sort of bring our conversation towards a, a conclusion by by just talking briefly about this story that broke in the Atlantic Monthly a few weeks ago about a database that's been compiled by uh, the Jehovah's Witness leadership of individuals in the church, um, leaders of the church who have been uh, guilty of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, mm. What's This is obviously something that you've started talking about seven years ago. Um, why is the story coming out now? It's coming out because st- we've been talking about it for years and still no one's doing anything about it. You, you know, you, you would think if if an organize, let's say a government organization, or let's say I don't know a political candidate had on his computer um, records of tens of thousands of um, of alleged perpetrators of child sex abuse that he wasn't handing over to the authorities. <laughs> That would be a massive, massive scandal. But if you're a religion, apparently that's the sort of thing you're allowed to do and get away with without too many questions asked. I I honestly think we're living at the wrong point in history because I'm pretty sure that future generations won't tolerate that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we're living at a point in history where an organization, as long as it can get away with calling itself a religion, has carte blanche to do that sort of thing. So we, we knew about this database as far back as 2002. There was a BBC Panorama uh, documentary called Suffer the Little Children that interviewed um, a former elder who said it was 23,000 names on the list. Um, wow. That, and, and since then, we've had more clarification on on how the database is stored. It it was for at least a period stored on a SharePoint system in Australia. They managed to get a chunk of it, namely all of the records from Australia going back to 1950. This was in 2014. So we're talking, uh, you know, many decades of, of records and they found that over that period, just in Australia, there'd been 1,006 alleged perpetrators of abuse, mm. accumulating 1,800 victims, and not a single one of them had been reported to the police. And the purpose for the database internally to the church was was what? Oh, because they, well, first of all, we can't have Jehovah's name coming into reproach. So we'll keep our our own records on that sort of thing. Thank you. No need to bother the authorities about this. Um, But, but mostly because they have, well, they, they hold to the idea that for anything like that, the, the, the church's kind of disciplinary process is paramount. So they have what's called the two-witness rule based on Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't convict someone unless there's two witnesses to uh, the accusation. They interpret that for all instances of quote-unquote sin, but they include um, child sex abuse in that, even though, as we know, 
people who abuse children sexually aren't usually in the habit of getting someone to witness it for them. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, the, the, there's some very backward thinking going on there. So and was the purpose of the database then to remove leaders and quietly set them aside? Or were they doing what the Catholics were doing and probably still are doing in moving them around from place to place to keep the thing from blowing up? They do. It's not really like the Catholic thing. The Catholic thing is, as far as I can tell, more to do with the way accusations against priests are dealt with and and the way that the Catholic Church has typically dealt with a priest who, you know, let's remember, due to his position, has almost unbridled access to the members of the congregation, including children, and unquestioned respect. Right. due to his position. And so the response of the Catholic Church is to just move the priest to a different parish. Um, with Jehovah's Witnesses, it, it's in a way more sinister than that. We're not talking about priests or elders per se. We're mm. talking about anyone oh. who, who is accused of child sex abuse. So it could be just an ordinary rank-and-file member of the congregation mm -hmm. Um, if let's say his daughter goes to the elders and say, daddy's been abusing me mm -hmm. and daddy denies it. And there are no other witnesses. The policy is that they will leave it in Jehovah's hands. Um, it used to be that they would even make it almost impossible for the victim to alert the authorities without themselves being uh, punished for slander. Um, but now they've relaxed that rule, but th they still don't have a policy where they will, in all cases, alert the authorities in that situation. They, the best they've come up with now is, oh well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't tell a victim that they can't go to the police. So, in other words, they put everything in the victim's lap. They don't accept any responsibility for alert alerting authorities when they find out about a, a sexual predator in the congregation. So that name would go on the database. Even, Indeed. Even though it wasn't uh, confirmed by a second witness, that name would still go on the database as sort of a record so that if someone else came forward, then that would perhaps that would satisfy the second witness. And then Indeed. But the, the database isn't just for that. It's not just for of such and such a body accused uh, such and such a body of this and we couldn't reach a decision the database will also include instances where they where there's been a confession so you could have according to the current policy and we've had examples of this you could have a jehovah's witness who confesses to sexually abusing um a child but because they say they're sorry Mm. They're deemed repentant, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not excommunicated from the congregation. They're quote-unquote reproved, which means basically that they just aren't allowed to comment at the meetings for a few months, and then they're back to normal. Restored, yeah. Which means that their victim, who in, you know, let's say the victim's in their congregation, their victim has to see them week in, week out, and treat them as though this person is their brother. So here, at least in the United States, clergy, um, I, and I'm, I, I think it's just clergy, not lay church leaders, are mandatory reporters. 
Mm. Um, so I guess my question is with the, you know, I guess we're looking at 20, almost 20 years, like 15 plus years of reporting on this crisis in the Jehovah's Witness um, community. And then most recently, an article in the Atlantic Monthly. Do you see any consequences uh, coming from this? Uh, are people going to face uh, um, trials? Uh, you know, are they going to be arrested or, or charged with either endangering the lives of children or failing to report when their status required them to? Well, the, the problem you have in America, actually in the United Kingdom, there isn't any mandatory reporting. You know, you would think there should be, but they're not at that point yet. In America, it really depends on the state. Mm. But even in states where there is mandatory reporting, Watchtower has been caught not reporting, even though it was the law. And that happened in Montana. I think that uh, that's mentioned in the Atlantic article where right. Watchtower was fined $35 million for uh, refusing to... Uh, notify authorities of uh, a predator in the congregation. In fact, they knew about this man. They knew this man had molested another child and they didn't alert the authorities. And guess what? He went on and molested someone else. How surprising. They they just sat on it. They hadn't done anything about it. Mm. Um, So that's what's happening. Uh, But if you're asking me what ought to happen, um, what ought to happen is, is that all eight members of the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses need to be arrested and they need to be prosecuted for the cover-up of child sex abuse and they need to serve time in jail proportionate to how long they've been in office. Um, But we're nowhere near that happening because for whatever reason, you'll have to ask the United States authorities and the FBI or, or whatever they just don't seem interested in holding religions accountable for the cover-up of child sex abuse. And it seems in other cases and across the United States with other faiths, other Christian faiths mostly, that the religious exemptions that you're speaking of, you know, this is a sort of an informal religious exemption, but there are formal religious exemptions which allow, you know, churches to discriminate Mm. on the basis of people's identity and so forth. It seems like religion is often, uh, like you said, carte blanche to to discriminate, to abuse uh, without consequences, with, with impunity. You know, we just mm. saw in the Catholic Church finally a cardinal uh, in the Catholic Church being uh, arrested and facing charges, and and probably looking at some some jail time, which may be the rest of his life because he's quite old. Uh, I just wonder whether any of the domestic cases here in the United States, whether it be the Jehovah's Witnesses that we're talking about right now, or the stories that have come out recently about the Baptists in the Houston Chronicle a month or two ago whether, you know, leadership in these organizations will face any consequences for what they've either done or covered up. Well, they should have faced consequences years ago. But unfortunately, again, we're living at the wrong point in history. There's still way too much deference being shown to the institution of religion. But there is hope because at least the media is starting to talk about it. And in uh, Douglas Quinqua's Atlantic article, uh, we see a very, very thorough expose, very well-written expose with some, again, some very compelling stories, just mm-hmm. laying everything out, you know, on a plate mm-hmm. so that when the authorities are finally of a mind to hold people who cover up child sex abuse on an industrial scale to account, the information's all there for them. 
Finally, just uh, do you think there's something about the theology of either Christianity in general or the witnesses particularly that leads to the tendency to um, engage in sexual assault uh, of minors or not of minors? Um, or, or is it just the combination of power and silence and secrecy? Or is there, is there something theological that you think is making this um, a common case among other religions as well? I, I know that in Jehovah's Witnesses, it's almost the theology and, and the culture makes it almost a perfect storm for this to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of kicking myself. I, I didn't figure it out while I was still in there. Hmm. But they have like this thing where you're not, you're not allowed to take another brother to court. Mm-hmm. Um, you you need to be prepared to forgive, even in the most extreme cases. You need to trust the elders in all matters. You need to let them uh, administer the affairs of the congregation, including wrongdoing. Um, there's the two witness rule, which I've already gone yes. into, and, and you you stack all these things up together and and stand back and think, gosh, that's a pedof- that's a pedophile's paradise right there. Mm. But those are all of the ingredients. If, if you were a pedophile you'd be falling over yourself to join a religion like that. Um, But I think more broadly in terms of Christianity, I think there is a lot of sexual repression intrinsic in many manifestations of Christianity, including Catholicism. I mean, you know, look at, you know, the way the the clergy must, must be celibate, for example. Right. I think that when you, when you dabble with people's sexuality, um, you're playing with fire hmm. and, and and lots of iterations of Christianity are guilty of this. So it's perhaps not a surprise that there is such rampant uh, pedophilia in so many Christian denominations. Yeah, boy, it is just nauseating to think about um, whether you have children of your own as you and I both do, or whether you don't, it's just, we all know, we all know people with who are children and 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 it's it's bad enough that that men in particular in power will abuse women specifically in in, mm-hmm. in most cases um when they're not children but then to go that next to that next level which is i think really incomprehensible for most of us um how mm-hmm. how a person could prey on a on a child who's not even really fully you know, developed as a, in their minds and in their bodies to, to even be able to comprehend what's happening to them and, and the trauma that their body absorbs and their mind absorbs that will affect them for the rest of their life. It's, it's truly pernicious and evil. It's the worst thing that, that could happen to a child apart from obviously killing them. Right. Because it, it stays with them for the rest of their lives. And, you know, any institution, whether it's religious or not, the absolute minimum requirement is that it looks after the most vulnerable in its community. Mm. And at least in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, that is a requirement that it is failing time and time again. Well said. Well, Lloyd, thank you so much for, number one, just thank you for everything that you've done over the last many years and are continuing to do. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time out of your evening and and uh, spending it with us here. And I uh, really hope and and look forward to um, future interactions that, that we may have and, and ways that we might co- collaborate to uh, help liberate people from these cults that are, are really harming them and, 
and, uh, and continue to hold people's feet to the fire until maybe, as you say, one day our society will take this sort of thing seriously. Indeed. Uh, listen, I, I really admire what you're doing, Ryan. I think that it, it, a lot of people will be able to relate. A lot of people will be empowered by you know some of the discussions that you're having, and I'm just very honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you appreciated Lloyd's story and the conversation that we shared. If you have a thought about today's episode, a comment, a suggestion, a clarification, or even a correction, please email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. The links to the articles that we talked about are in the show notes, as well as a link to buy Lloyd's book, The Reluctant Apostate. Please subscribe to his YouTube channel and share it with anyone you know who needs to escape from this dangerous cult. I'm really excited about the next couple of episodes that are coming up on the show. I'm not sure which order these will appear in, but in the next few weeks, you'll hear from James Croft, who is the outreach director for the Society for Ethical Culture in St. Louis, Missouri. In the next few days, I'll be recording an interview with Yale professor Martin Hagland about his new book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. It's a groundbreaking new book that looks at the fragility and temporality of human life and contemporary politics. I can't wait to both have this conversation with Professor Hagland and also to share it with you. Also in the next few weeks, I'll be hosting our second live hangout for members on the subject of loss, grief, and mourning with a panel of experts on the subject that include Brian Peck, Garrett Price, my guest from the previous episode, and Rachel Roth, who is in private practice helping people with exactly those issues and concerns. So if you want to be a part of that live hangout and contribute to that conversation, please join Life After God as a member today. You can do that at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. For more information about Life After God and to stay in touch with everything else that we're doing, please visit lifeaftergod.org. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God Podcast.